continuing on from our series in Mark, we are in Mark chapter 5, and we're going to read through Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read from the ESV, and the Word of God reads, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackle in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had, that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to pro proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him, and everyone marveled. It's a bit of a long passage, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for another Sunday. Uh, we thank you, even though it is a busy April April that's coming up, uh, we thank you for everything that you've got going on for us, uh, the baptisms uh, and being able to recommence communion uh, together with our FLM congregation. Lord, as we continue in this series in Mark's Gospel, we go into chapter 5 and we see Jesus' encounter with that notorious, uh, well, not demon, but demons uh, that, a name, go by the name of Legion. Uh, Lord, we, we pray to understand the significance of today's passage. And once again, we ask for an encounter with your Son through your Word. We pray to be transformed so that we study this passage not just as a historical account from something that occurred 2,000 years ago, but as your living Word that shapes your people from day to day. Lord, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, last week we saw that as the sun went down uh, and evening came about, Jesus and his apostles, uh, they crossed the Sea of Galilee via boat, 
And as they were journeying across the Sea of Galilee, uh, we were able to see that they encountered a mega storm in the middle of the night. And they cried out to Jesus, who was fast asleep. And Jesus, the moment he hears their cry in the midst of the mega storm, hears their cry, wakes up, and brings about mega peace, mega calm. And we saw that in the conclusion of chapter 4, that the disciples, as a result, experience mega fear about what they just witnessed. Now, remember that this is all happening at nighttime. The sun's gone down, they cross the sea at nighttime, um, and as they arrive at their destination, across the Sea of Galilee, at this place called Gerasenes in verse 1, uh, you have to remember that it's still dark. It's pitch black. And even though Mark doesn't give us a specific time as to when they landed, uh, the journey across the Sea of Galilee via a sailboat takes about two to three hours. Uh, and I looked it up on Google. The sun sets at about 6 p.m. in that region of the world. Uh, so we can estimate, at the very least, it's probably at least 9 p.m. when they arrive at Gerasenes. It might have been any, any time after 9, but it would have still been in the middle of the night. And so as we read verses 2 to 5, it says, And when Jesus had step out, stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, I want us to visualize what's going on. This scene, take a minute to visualize what's taking place. The disciples, this is in the middle of the night, the pitch black darkness of night. They have just had, at the end of chapter 4, a near-death experience. They were, just moments ago, at the mercy of a megastorm. They almost died. Like, don't think that they, like, they, they literally almost died. Remember, seasoned fishermen were on the boat. They knew they were moments away from death. These guys would have been terrified. Not just at having had a near-death experience, but Jesus in calming the storm. Chapter 4 ends showing that they were terrified of Jesus. Because up until this point, they thought that Jesus was like a great preacher, a great leader. Uh, remember, when, when, they, when they were afraid for their lives, they called out and referred to Jesus as teacher. But in this moment, as Jesus calms the storm, they've just witnessed the guy that they've left everything behind for, uh, supernaturally demonstrate the ability to control the weather. These guys are terrified. And now they've finally made it across the sea. They've survived this megastorm. They finally land on shore in the pitch black darkness of night. And they've realized that of all the places that they could have landed, they've landed in the middle of a cemetery or a graveyard. Um, and then, to make it even worse, without even being given a moment to emotionally recover from the trauma that they've just experienced, the passage tells us that a naked demon-possessed lunatic covered from head to, head to toe in self-inflicted scars. This naked demon-possessed man 
storms out of the graveyard and starts screaming at the top of his top of his lungs, running full speed towards them. Now, I know I've mocked the apostles a few times in the last few weeks, but say what you will about the apostles. You've got to give them credit here. Because any normal person, I think at this stage, having encountered the storm, having encountered their master supernaturally stop the storm, landing in a cemetery, and now seeing a crazy naked guy running towards you, I think I would have just gotten in the boat. I'm like, I'm done. I can't do this. This is too much. Like, even before the demon-possessed man comes out, I think I would have landed in the middle of the cemetery in the pitch darkness of light and turned to Jesus. Like, where have you brought us? Why did we have to come here? What's the point of this? But they don't do that. And I don't know if it's bravery or stupidity, but they just stand there watching this guy screaming at the top of his lungs, running towards them. And when he reaches Jesus, the ESV says that he fell down, and literally it means he bowed down before Jesus. Uh, And this wasn't so much an act of worship, but just a recognition of how much more powerful Jesus was than him. Some people believe that the megastorm from last week's passage was actually orchestrated by this demon. Because he knew the Holy One of God was going to cross the sea and was coming closer and closer towards him. And there are some commentators that believe that the great storm was orchestrated by this demon to slow them down or stop them or get them to turn around and go back. Now verse 7, it reads, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, or the demon said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adore you, by God, do not torment me. Now, this first half of the statement, it's a question from the demon. He's asking Jesus, what do you want from me? And now, apart from the irony that of all beings, this demon, he's asking Jesus to swear to God. He says, what do you want with me? And then he says to Jesus, I want you to swear to God. Apart from the irony of that, The other ironic thing is that this demon is begging Jesus not to torture him. And why is that ironic? Because what's the demon been doing up until this point to this poor man? He's been doing nothing but torturing this man. Torturing him mentally on such a scale that it's led to this man continually self-harming himself. He's been cutting himself from head to toe with rocks. And if anyone tried to chain this man up or subdue him to try and protect him from self-harming himself, this demon would break apart the metal chains and smash the shackles to pieces. And then to top it off, this guy was naked 24 hours a day, exposed to the elements. And nakedness uh, throughout scripture usually alludes to the suggestion that through his demonic uh, demonic possession, that this man has spiraled very deep into some kind of sexual perversion. And so this demon, who's speaking through this man, recognizes who Jesus is, and he begs Jesus, please swear to God, don't torture me. Don't do to me what I've been doing to this guy. And this begging must have been a response to Jesus' insistence in verse 8. Because Jesus, up until this point, apparently has been insisting and telling the demon, get out of him. You unclean spirit. 
But it seems that this demon wasn't just an ordinary demon because he puts up a bit of resistance compared to the other demons that Jesus has exercised up until this point. And this would suggest that there's something very different and very unique about this demon. And we find out why in verses 9 and 10. Uh, verses 9 and 10 read, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, if you remember in previous weeks, I explained uh, that this idea of identifying and naming an entity is actually a means of exercising authority over that entity. That's why I don't know how many horror fans there are here, but if you've watched uh, demonic possession movies, you'll see the Catholic priest um, demanding the demon, name yourself, identify yourself. That's actually not a coincidence. It has uh, a biblical root uh, in passages like this. And so in a sense, that, that's, a, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Um, initially, he tells the demon to get out. The demon puts up a bit of resistance. And then Jesus is like, I'm done. Give me your name. What is your name? And then the demon reveals that his name is Jesus because it's not just one demon, but it's many demons that are present in this man. If anyone that's familiar with ancient history, you know that that term legion, it's a military term. And the, the term legion uh, was a reference to a special forces unit in the Roman army that was made up of about 6,000, 6,000, maybe anywhere between five to 6,000 elite soldiers like the best of the best. Uh, so we can assume that the demons that are possessing this man aren't any ordinary demons. There's about 6,000 of them, and it explains why this guy had supernatural strength. So 6,000 demons that recognize the Holy One of God has crossed the Sea of Galilee and come towards them. They all fall down, trembling and panicking before King Jesus. And they're trying to find a way out by negotiating and reaching an agreement with Jesus. Verses 11 to 13, it reads, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. Now, before we move on any further, uh, I want to give you some more details about what we've looked at so far and give you a bit of perspective at the level of spiritual darkness that Jesus and the apostles are facing in this passage. Uh, Numbers 31.19 explains how contact with dead bodies makes a person ritually unclean in the eyes of God. And Jewish rabbinical traditions teach that not only physical contact with dead bodies, but even touching something that's linked with a dead body would make you ritually and spiritually unclean. And the process to cleanse yourself, to make you fit for worship again, was seven days. So bearing in mind that even coming near the dead is enough to make you unclean, you have to remember, where have they actually landed? They're in the middle of a graveyard, in a cemetery. And then on top of that, what animals are nearby? What herd of animals? It's pigs. And Leviticus 11 tells us the same thing applies to pigs. 
you come into contact with a pig or come into the vicinity of a pig, it makes you ritually unclean. And it's not just one or two pigs here. There's 2,000 of them. And then what town have they arrived in? They've arrived in a region called Gerasenes, which if you look at your maps, is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and on the east of the River Jordan. This is Gentile territory, or if you don't know what the word Gentile means, literally means non-Jewish territory. This is a non-Jewish region. And to the Jews, they, they, they had this understanding that anything that's related to the Gentiles is considered spiritually and ritually unclean. That's why if you look at the book of Acts, the apostles, they didn't even want to eat at the same table as the Gentiles because the Jews had this kind of stereotypical view that Gentiles are unclean. So they've landed in this unclean part of the world. And then on top of that, who have they encountered? They've encountered a man that's possessed by a spirit. What kind of a spirit? An unclean spirit, according to today's passage. So everything about their situation and their surroundings is unclean. And so effectively what Jesus has done by getting his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee is he's taken them to the darkest of places that they could possibly go in the pitch black of night as well. This would have been a nightmare situation for any faithful Jew. And so Jesus uh, negotiates with Legion and he gives him permission to come out of the man and into the pigs and then we see the devastation and the true destructive power of Satan. Because these 2,000 pigs, what do they do? They, all of them, in unison, run into the sea and they drown instantly. And so what we see is a demonstration at the heart of what Satan is all about. At Satan's core, all he has to offer, he, no matter how much he might pretty it up and package it up and put a nice bow in it, at the heart of everything that Satan has to offer, all that it is, is death and destruction. It's the polar opposite of what the Messiah has to offer, which is the opposite of death and destruction, but life and restoration. Now, the herdsmen, oh, I really feel for these guys. Their one job was to take care of these pigs. 2,000 pigs. I don't even know how much that would have come, like, come to in terms of value, but 2,000 pigs, they were paid to do one job. <laughs> how do you explain that to your boss? You gave me 2,000. Like, like, imagine if you had 2,000 cars to take care of and you tell your em employer, yeah, yeah, all 2,000, all gone. But these guys just witnessed a mass suicide. Like they're probably wanting, can animals even experience depression? But the mass suicide of 2,000 pigs and they're consumed with terror and they run into town and they go and tell everyone what just happened. And the people probably were in disbelief. 2,000 pigs dead commit suicide and they all come out to see for themselves what's happened. And when they arrive, they see Jesus and then they see the demoniac, the formerly possessed man sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this would have been shocking to them because they knew this guy. This was the crazy guy in the cemetery that ran up and down the mountain, through the graveyards, the guy that ran butt naked, cutting himself, screaming at the top of his lungs. And for the first time in their life, 
this guy's wearing some clothes. Like, thank goodness. No longer naked. He's finally decided to put on some clothes. And not only that, he's not running around. He's not screaming anymore. He's sitting obediently at the feet of Jesus. And they can tell just by looking at him. He's in his right mind now. His mind was now stable and restored. I don't know if you've ever had a naked guy running at you. I've experienced that once. It is terrifying. Um, I was driving through Stratfield, and there's like a roundabout that you, you turn right at the roundabout, and then you head towards Stratfield Plaza. That roundabout, there's like a bed and breakfast up, up on the hill on the left. Um, I was driving there at night, and a naked guy just tumbled down the hill. And it took me a second to register that he was naked. And I stopped, and I froze. I looked at him, and then he looked at me and started running towards my car, and I floored it, and I gummed it. I was terrified. So you can only imagine what these guys thought. They weren't in the safety of their car. They were used to seeing this guy running towards them, and now he's in his right mind. His mind has been restored, and thank goodness he's wearing clothes now. Now, we see two reactions in response to this. The first is from the people of this Gentile region, the people of Gerasenes. It says that after hearing all the details, after like, you know, they see the 2,000 dead pigs, they see the demoniac in his right mind, and they hear what, like, an explanation of what's just happened. Their reaction to this in verse 17 is to beg Jesus, please go away, we don't, we don't want you here. Can you, just, can you just leave? That's one reaction. Now on the other hand, we see another reaction, and that's from the demoniac. The guy who was formerly possessed, running around naked, screaming at the top of his lungs, cutting himself with rocks, we see that this man, upon encountering Jesus, who's now in his right mind, verses 18 to 20 shows his reaction and what happens. It says, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man, the demoniac, who had been possessed with demons, begged him, Jesus, that he might be with him. And Jesus didn't permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, there's something very telling about these verses uh, that reveals some detail of what's taken place in this man. Because if you read very carefully at Mark's choice of words in verses 19 and 20, you'll come to learn that there's, you know, it's more than just an exorcism that's taken place. It's more than just the healing of this man's insane mind, and it's more than just a naked guy wearing clothes now. But it seems that this man, he's experienced a special revelation. And special revelation, it's a theological term, meaning that the Spirit of God has opened this guy's heart. Something's changed in this man. Why do I say this? Because if you read the wording in verses 19 and 20, it seems that this man now has an understanding about the true identity of who Jesus is. Because Jesus tells him in verse, verse 19, what does he say to him? He says, go, go home, tell everyone, but tell everyone what the Lord, kurios in the Greek, the term for God, go and tell everyone what the Lord God has done for you. Tell everyone how much God has done for you and how much mercy God has shown to you. Verse 20 shows that the man responds in obedience. But there's a, 
There's a specific detail that Mark includes. Because the man responds in Jesus by going home and telling everyone what Jesus has done for him. And so despite this brief encounter that he has with Jesus, he seems to have come away with a grasp, a clear understanding of who Jesus actually is. And this is significant because if you contrast it with last week's passage, the disciples in last week's passage, we, we saw you know, up until this point, they've heard great preaching, they've seen miracles, they've seen healings. You know, gee, they've heard Jesus say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet, as they were clinging to the boat in the middle of the storm, their confession of faith about Jesus was what? He's a teacher. Nothing more than just a teacher. And so it appears that Jesus has done more in this man than just casting out a demon and restoring his mind. But this man has come away with the true understanding of who Jesus is, that he's God. And this is something that we call a special revelation. And scripture teaches us that special revelation is something that only God can bring about in a person. And then that's how today's passage ends. And so I want to share two observations with you that I'm hoping will shape uh, what we can take away from today's passage and shape the way we, we, we do life uh, going forward. Uh, the first point or observation is that we have to endure hardship when it comes to exposing people to Christ. We have to endure hardship when it comes to exposing people to Christ. This is just a given. You know, John 3.16 is that cliche, cliche verse, that proof text that everyone quotes when we want to talk about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's almost something we assume and take for granted, isn't it? God loves the world. God loves you. God loves me. God loves the world and God is love. And that's true. But one thing we learn as we study today's passage, one thing today's passage reveals to us is the intensity of that love, the depth of that love, even for the most depraved of individuals. Because remember, Jesus and his apostles, if you remember last week's passage, they got into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus instructed them, let's cross over, knowing that a mega, mega storm was coming. Because remember, he is a sovereign God, all-knowing. So Jesus gave that command, went across the sea, knowing that they were going to encounter a mega storm. And at the risk of their own lives, they crossed the sea and enter into Gentile territory. Jesus goes into a place that's ritually and spiritually unclean. And then not only that, Jesus knowingly lands the boat, where? In the middle of a cemetery, in the middle of the night. And then encounters an insanely, impossibly strong, but naked man, possessed by 6,000 demons. And like I mentioned earlier, like I love horror movies. I'm a big horror genre buff. Um, and I, this sounds weird, I like being scared. Um, but, I think, even for me, spending this evening with Jesus would have been a bit too much for me. I think, you know, there's, for even for me, there's a limit 
to how much I want to be scared. But Jesus knowingly has the apostles shadow him for this journey. And I think today's passage is remarkable because it shows us the heart of our master. Because if you read the next few words after today's passage, you know, after he, he heals this man, casts out the demon, gives a special revelation of who he is, and the people of Gerasenes tell him, get out of here. What does Jesus do? Verse 21 tells us that he just got back in the boat and went back to where he came from. He went back. And so think about this for a moment. Think about the context of everything that has happened. Jesus, in chapter 4, sat on a boat from morning to evening, preaching the whole day, like 12 hours, the whole day preaching. From sunrise to sunset. I don't know what, what that's like, but I can only imagine he was in a state of physical exhaustion. So exhausted that he's able to sleep through a mega storm. And then not only do they go through a mega storm, they almost die in the mega storm. They survive the mega storm, reach the other side in the middle of the night in one of the most spiritually dark places you could ever visit, a graveyard in Gentile territory, and then a naked guy runs to you, possessed by 6,000 demons. I'll say it again. I think if it was me, I probably would have jumped back in the boat and said, I'm done. I can't do this. This is too much. Like, everything, the graveyard, I was willing to accept. Naked guy, I can't do this. This is way too much. And I think even after exercising the demon and getting on the boat and going back, if I were an apostle, I think I still would have been angry. I think I would have said to Jesus, is that it? Like, we didn't even get to go offshore. We landed and we were here only for a little while and now we're getting back on the boat to go through back to where we came from. But what was the point of all of that? The point that Jesus had for crossing the sea was for that one encounter. To the apostles, they probably wondered, was it worth it? This terrifying ordeal just so that we could save one person. But for Christ, going into the most darkest of places, for that one individual that was spiritually depraved, probably more than anyone that they'd ever encounter in their three-year ministry, it was totally worth it. For Christ, this level of suffering and hardship was just a given, even if it meant to save one person's life. And this act of Christ in taking his disciples over would be an event that would foreshadow the great suffering that Christ would have to endure on the road to Calvary. For Christ, it made sense to cross the sea and risk his life for that one demoniac. And the life and ministry of Christ should shape the way we interact and minister to others. Not simply waiting for them to come to us, you know, praying, you know, please bring them to me, but praying. Give me an opportunity for me to go to them. Help me to meet them in their most darkest of places. And that leads me on to my second point. That as Christians, we're called to participate in God's plan, not simply be observers. We're called to participate in God's sovereign plan, not just be observers. 
Now, in today's passage, we see that after this demoniac undergoes his exorcism, he expresses his desire, his heartfelt desire. He says to Jesus, I want to go with you. Let me come along with you. But Jesus doesn't let him tag along with the apostles. But he tells him to go home. And do what? He says, share what the Lord has done for you. Tell everyone about the mercy that God has bestowed upon you. Effectively, Jesus is commissioning the first ever missionary in the New Testament. And this man responds to Jesus in obedience. Because verse 20 tells us he went into this region called the Decapolis. And if you're wondering what the Decapolis is, it's a, it's a group of 10 Gentile cities. Uh, think of it like a shire, like, you know, the Ride Shire or Parramatta Shire. It's just like a bunch of different suburbs. Suburbs. Think of the Decapolis like that. It's a region of about 10 cities or suburbs. And he goes from region, city to city within the Decapolis telling everyone about what Jesus has done and how Jesus has transformed his life. That's what evangelism is, isn't it? And what's crazy is if you read on in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, you'll find that as Jesus continues his three-year ministry, he goes into this region of Decapolis in chapter 7. And it seems that the work of this demoniac has paid off because when Jesus enters into Decapolis in chapter 7, people are responsive to Christ. They come looking for Christ. They've heard about who Christ is. And it all began with this one demoniac that encountered Jesus and responded to Jesus in obedience. And I think this, you know, this is an account in Mark's gospel that we can learn from and respond to. Because so often, so often like when, we, when we think about our God, we know that our God is sovereign. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing God. We know that according to Scripture, that even the dust particles that rotate in the air rotate because He wills it and He commands it. We know that the God of the universe is the author of our salvation. That he is the initiator, he is the sustainer, he is the completer of our salvation. We know that God has a perfect plan. That he initiated a rescue mission to save mankind. That he paid for the sins of mankind and that his plan, his perfect plan, is continuing and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop it. However, I think the modern day church has a tendency to forget that even though God's plan is a perfect plan, an unstoppable plan, that his plan involves human agents. For people that have encountered Christ, that have confessed him as Lord and Savior, that have repented of their sins and confessed that they will follow him, that have been baptized in the presence of the church. We're not called to be bystanders and observers of God's plan being carried out. We're not called to simply watch from the sidelines and just applaud at everything that God's doing. But we're called to be human agents that participate in God's plan being fulfilled. When the demoniac got saved physically, mentally, and spiritually, he didn't just become a passive believer. He didn't just go to church on Sundays, hear a sermon, and then go, go home thinking he's done his service for the kingdom. 
but he became a human agent in God's kingdom. He became a participant in the plans of God being fulfilled and carried out through his life. And sometimes I think we have this tendency to fall into this trap where we're just satisfied with being bystanders and observers. But by the authority of God's word, I can testify to you, not as a pastor, but just as a Christian, that that's not the life that Jesus has called us to. That's not the life that Jesus has called any of his disciples to, to just be simply bystanders and observers. Christ lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Christ died the death we were meant to die. Christ rose again, conquering death on our behalf. According to the scriptures, Christ drank down the full force of God's wrath that was meant for us. According to the book of Acts, Christ ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for his people. And when he ascended, he sent the Spirit of God according to the book of Acts. So that man, that his followers, by the Spirit of God, could be renewed, could be born again, and be made into new creations according to Scripture. All of this did not take place so that we could be mere bystanders and observers when it comes to God's plan and God's kingdom. God's decree is that all of us become human agents in his perfect plan and his kingdom being advanced. This means there should be nothing tame or passive about our walk with Jesus and our faith, ever. And so when we look to our friends and our family outside of church, we have to understand, because we're not bystanders and we're not observers from the sidelines, because we are human agents in God's plan, when we look to our friends and our family outside of church, we have to understand that our relationship with them, if we do believe in a sovereign God with a, with, with a sovereign plan, we have to understand that our relationship with them is no coincidence. That if we do have a relationship with people outside of church, that there is an eternal purpose behind it. To share with them what Christ commanded the demoniac in verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it's not just with unbelievers. My heart and my, my hope for the CG groups as well. This is why I'm so obsessed with, if you're not in a CG group, please get plugged into a CG group. We've had a great sign up. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet and you're sort of on the fence about it, just, just sign up. Because part of the purpose of CG groups is so that you can share with each other what Christ has done in your life and be able to celebrate together what Christ has done and is continuing to do in your life and be able to worship this Christ that is continuing to act in your life each day. So those are the two points I want to leave you guys with. The first, remember that enduring hardship goes hand in hand with this work of exposing people to Christ. And secondly, remember that we're, we're called to participate we are human agents in God's plan. We're not called to simply watch from the sidelines and be bystanders and observers. So on that note, I want to enter into a time of prayer with all of you today. Uh, 
I know for myself, if I'm to be honest, even in ministry, uh, so often I have to find myself repenting. Because so often I have, at times, this bystander attitude towards ministry. Uh, when I see people, I've done this so many times in the past, I see people in my congregation that it's just, I, I just watch them. But I never really make that effort to travel to them and meet them where they are in their darkest place. And I kind of expect them to come to me. Um, but it's not just a responsibility limited to pastoral ministry and leaders. But it's a task commissioned to anyone that confesses Christ and Lord. That we're to come out of our comfort zone and meet people where they are in their darkest place. Because usually it's in, the, it's in the context, it's in the background of the pitch darkness of what they're experiencing. That Christ, the light of Christ will shine all the more brightly. It's in the pitch darkness of their life that they will be able to see the light of Christ and realize what a treasure he actually is. And so in this moment, uh, if you have had the heart of a bystander or a mere sideline observer, let's take a moment to repent of this before God and pray for opportunities. Help us to be receptive to the people around us, the world around us, so that we can take advantage, seize opportunities to meet people where they are in their darkest of places. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today's passage. We thank you for revealing your heart in today's passage for the lost. That the Son of God was willing to go through a megastorm just to save one individual. And not just any individual, but one of the most depraved of individuals in one of the most darkest places on earth. Lord, thank you for revealing your heart, the heart that doesn't give up on the lost. And we see this as well in the people of Decapolis. 
who told your son to leave, that wanted nothing to do with your son. We see your heart. That you didn't give up on these people of Decapolis either, but that you commissioned the first ever missionary in this demoniac to go into this region and to preach and proclaim the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray a prayer of repentance that we would purge any sense of passiveness that we might have in our hearts, that we would no longer settle for having the heart of a bystander or an observer, but engage in the responsibility that we have as born-again followers of the risen King to be human agents in the advancement of His kingdom. Father, help us to pray for opportunities to be receptive, to see when there are people in a dark place. And we pray for the courage to step out of our comfort zone, to meet people in their dark place. We pray that you would purge any spirit of timidness or fear, that these words would have nothing to do with the definition of what our faith looks like, and that our faith in the risen Christ would be defined by a ferocious passion, a jealousy to see your name glorified amongst the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come away from having studied this passage, not just having learned about an event that occurred 2,000 years ago, but that your living word would shape the way we do life, shape the way we interact with the fallen world around us, and shape the way we interact with our fellow brothers and sisters within FLM. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll now have a time of offering followed by final praise. The details for offering will be shown on the screen. Um, for those who, in case you were wondering or were a little bit uh, unclear, this is the um, account number for the main church. Uh, for those, there are a couple of our members who are um, giving the offering into the full life account. That may have been because you've paid you know, camp fees or things previously. So just please make sure you double check that you've got the details correct. Physical offerings can also be dropped off at the offering box, which is near the front entrance. You can use the envelopes that are in the envelope holders on the aisles to put uh, the physical offerings in there. Uh, we're reminded today through the, through the passage, through the scripture that was preached to us today, to be participants, active participants in God's plan. And one of the ways that we can do that is by being generous in our giving. Uh, there are many um, examples of that in the Bible, many passages on that. Um, one in particular that I um, just wanted to share was from the book of uh, Corinthians. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's, let's prepare our offerings to give them with, a thank, with thanksgiving in our heart, um, freely, uh, from what from our acknowledgement and our, and our uh, declaration that all that we have comes from God. Let's continue to give uh, faithfully um, as, a, as a congregation. Um, and if you have already given online, let's take a moment to, uh, to meditate in prayer.
right, church, why don't we all rise to our feet for the final song? We'll see you guys outside for Peter.